The COVID-19 pandemic has changed life for all of us. But even before this, we were already fighting an epidemic, the battle against chronic disease. And those with chronic diseases are at highest risk of contracting severe coronavirus infections. So how do we protect ourselves during these uncertain times? But more importantly, how do we view health? Welcome to the Glass Half Healthy Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jonar, a physician board certified in internal medicine and certified in lifestyle medicine. In this podcast, I want to address the current crisis of chronic disease and to challenge the conventional attitude towards health. We will be exploring these issues with thought-provoking guests to help redefine what health should mean for all of us. I hope to inspire you to take action towards a happier, thriving life because good health comes to those who expect it. What is up, everyone? I am your host, Dr. Jonar, and this is my podcast, The Glass Half Healthy. To our most loyal fans, thank you for being here, and to our first-time listeners, a warm welcome to my pod, which was recently ranked by Board Vitals in the best 21 medical podcasts to subscribe to in 2021. I am still so pumped about this and grateful for this honor. And of course, this would not be what it is without all of you listening. So I sincerely thank each and every one of you, and I hope to continue bringing amazing guest discussions to keep you moving along your health journey. That said, I want to address a big problem that has surfaced its ugly head during this pandemic, and it's addiction. So my guest this week is Dr. Erfosa Iruhia, and he's here to help us. But before we get into details, a word from our sponsor. This episode of The Class Half Healthy is brought to you by berries. Berries like raspberries, blueberries, and blackberries are all excellent sources of beta-carotene, lycopene, and vitamins A, C, and E. They're loaded with antioxidants, which help keep inflammation down in the body. And most of all, they taste amazing. So eat, drink, and be berry. Get them wherever fresh produce is sold. Okay, back to the pod. This is our 24th episode, and I'm dedicating this one to all those who have and continue to struggle with addiction and to their caring family and friends during this difficult time of the pandemic. The title of our episode, How the Pandemic Enabled Addiction with Addiction Specialist and Psychiatrist, Dr. Erfosa Aruhia. Dr. Aruhia is board certified in addiction medicine and psychiatry, as well as a member of the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine. His training has brought him to live all over the world, which he will discuss in more detail. But he's here today to discuss addiction because the pandemic has affected millions of people out there who have suffered serious hardship over the past year, you know, working from home, kids schooling from home, some losing their jobs, some even losing family members and friends. So this comes at no surprise that all that stress, anxiety, and depression has caused people to turn to things like alcohol and drugs to help them cope. And consequently, there's been a rise in addiction during this time. So Dr. Aruhia will help us make better sense of what is happening right now and what any one person can do to help themselves 
or others during this pandemic. We have lots to cover, so let's just enter the pod with Dr. Aruhia. All right, so great having you on the show here, and thanks for coming. Thank you, Jonah. It's nice to be on your pod. Oh, of course, of course. So we actually met online, but we share a common passion. So we're both certified in lifestyle medicine. That's correct. You, you know, you have a very interesting background. So you have a background in psychiatry, plus you've trained in both the UK and the US, and you worked in Nigeria, correct? That's right, Jonah. Yeah, so I wanna ask you, how, how did this all come together? You have just a very interesting background. Well, you know, I'll, I'll, I think I'll start that with just a very short backdrop as a story. I used to work in Missouri, and um, I recall at the time I was working in an inpatient facility for kids who had undergone severe trauma and also had other mental uh, issues. And I recall this one day when I spoke to a kid, and just as he left the uh, interview room, there was uh, three other kids uh, right outside the office um, who were talking to themselves. And, you know, they asked him how the interview with me went. And he said, well, uh, it went really well. Uh, the doctor was really nice. He asked me a lot of questions about how I'm doing, but he sounds different. And uh, that uh, cracked me up. And I, I recall hearing one of the kids saying, well, you know, I think he's from Mexico. <laughs> and um, another kid said, no, 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 he's, he's from France. And he sounded so sure about it. And then yet the third kid said, no, he's from Iceland. So that cracked me up so much. As much as those are beautiful countries, no, I'm not from any of those countries. I'm from Nigeria. And that's where my Nigeria. medical training started. Gotcha. <laughs> and then um, I moved over to the uh, UK in 2004. I lived in England for about four years. That was when I started my psychiatry training and then eventually moved down to the US in 2008, uh, University of Missouri, Columbia. I lived in Columbia, Missouri for about seven years and I'm currently in uh, Dallas, Texas. Dallas, Te wow. So you have lived and been all over the place, huh? It's it's been a few travels, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but again, I think that's that contributes to an enriching experience for me, just in terms of being able to tap into, you know, all the the facets of the different continents of living and the different trainings I've had. And with that, I can actually offer patients I treat a lot more. So that's for that's sure. enriching for sure. So then, these areas of expertise of yours, so psychiatry, addiction medicine, and then lifestyle medicine. You know, how do your areas of specialty kind of intersect and why is this especially important when it comes to addiction? So for me, I've always been interested in psychiatry and I, I, I think I've always had the mindset that if you want to go out and help someone, you have to go all out and help and be as well-rounded as possible. So mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. I completed my psychiatry residency training, I realized that getting a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry will help me better understand how an individual operates and how an individual's past and upbringing translates into what the individual ends up being like. Uh, For in sure. Future. So that was one of the reasons why I went into uh, the Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Fellowship to help me understand people better. And then following that, I realized that there was just a lot of stigma when it came to treating addiction patients. And I saw mm. a lot of that. When you deal with mental health patients, you're going to run into a lot of people who have dual diagnosis or co-occurring disorders in the sense that they have anxiety, depression, PTSD, but they're also struggling with alcohol or drugs or um, other, other um, uh, illicit substances. So for me, 
trying to learn a lot about that as I could was the reason why I went into addiction psychiatry and just hearing a lot of stories out there as well just really leaves a mark on your on your memory and um if you don't mind, I'll just like to very quickly tell you about an experience I had back then when I was training, even before I did the addiction uh, fellowship. Yeah, I recall, please. I recall at the time uh, when I was attending to patients in an ER. I um, what was had, this in just to clarify, Missouri yes, was this? This was in Missouri. That's Missouri, right. Okay. That's Got right. It. Before I did the child, the um, addiction fellowship, mm -hmm. and this was a thirty-four-year-old man who had come into the ER after taking an overdose of mm -hmm. drugs and alcohol. After he tried to kill himself, he mm -hmm. had a history of alcohol use and mm -hmm. had multiple issues as a result of complications from his alcohol use. So he had some marital issues. He had just lost his job. He had a DUI. He also had liver disease as well. And I remember this patient so clearly because. I was also 34 years old at the time when I saw this patient. Mm, and mm -hmm, this is mm -hmm. a patient who had a three-year-old son, and I also had a three-year-old son. So I could, in a sense, relate to this patient. Right. Now, my, my son is now 13 years old, and his 13, son okay. been 13 as well. Uh -huh. He lost his son in a vehicle accident just a oh, few God. after his son's third birthday. Oh, and this my patient God. was driving. I had never seen someone so broken. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's mm -hmm. stories like this, among several others, that encouraged me to go ahead to help to learn more about addiction. So I can help people like this who are really struggling uh, with addiction. And then, of course, we also talk about lifestyle medicine, right? Day sure, in, yeah. day out. I see people who who practice the various standards of lifestyle medicine just do a lot better in terms of their mental health and the sure. addiction as well. So for me, that's the reason why I ended up getting all these extra certifications. To make no, myself you know, I, I think that's that's really, you know, remarkable of you. I think that a lot of times, I mean, this doesn't even apply to psychiatry. It's all aspects of health. When you dig down deep, that's where the root cause of some of these problems we see, whether it is chronic disease or mental illness. And the thing is, mental illness, mental health, it is health. It's your overall health. That's so right. for you to take an interest in all these different aspects, yeah, they contribute to it. And like you mentioned with that, that really sad case, which that's heartbreaking, by the way. I mean, these are some of the reasons that we see patients coming in with, with these type of problems. So I think it's, you know, a very, you know, inspiring thing that you're doing. And it's very admirable because a lot of times, you know, whenever someone is in a specific specialty in medicine, they kind of just focus on their niche, right? That's right. And when really you, you kind of have to see the whole picture, because if you don't, you're only focusing on the part rather than seeing the whole and really to fully treat anyone, whether it's from psychiatry, internal medicine, what have you, you got to approach it from a holistic standpoint, in my opinion, you know, so think, what you're doing you is like just, you know, spot on. So, you know, I commend you for it. Thank you. And I think you hit several nails on the head there. You talked about the root cause and, you know, you talked about holistic as well. When you can do that, I think overall, just like I'm sure you've noticed, Jonah, patients just do better overall. They they do. They do. And then they trust you, too, because you're asking questions that maybe they've seen previous physicians that have never even asked them. That's and correct. so for, for you to just, you know, even ask it, not even talk in detail about it, just ask it it really opens up that trust with that person, you know? And so with your specific niche in addiction, you know, there are some definitions of addiction 
floating out around there. You know, I mentioned them on previous podcast episodes, Dr. Judson Brewer, who actually presented at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine conference this past uh, October. His definition, he says, continued use despite harmful consequences. And then there's another neuroscientist. His name is Dr. Andrew Huberman. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he's out of Stanford, I believe. And his definition is a progressive narrowing of things that bring you pleasure. That's his definition of addiction. So how would you, in your own words, define addiction? Well, addiction is is a lot more widespread than I think people realize. And mm. um, generally mm-hmm. speaking, I tend to look at addiction as the compulsive use mm-hmm. of a substance uh-huh. or in some cases, it's all the behaviors that right. can and people carry on using the substances or carrying out these behaviors despite harmful consequences. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. talking about addiction being really widespread, I think again it brings me back to to the issue of stigma. So when we talk about people being addicted to substances, it's not just the homeless man carrying a brown paper bag, walking in the alleyway. No. It's the it's your high functioning CEO who is married with three kids who uses cocaine. It's the nurse whom you saw a week ago in hospital who is addicted to pain pills. It's the right. your clergyman, for instance, who has compulsive masturbation, the college kid who uses Adderall. I mean, you can go on and on and on. Right, so and family I, and friends too, family right? And I friends, mean, it's, exactly. It's, yeah, it's very yeah. Per, more pervasive than a lot of than people we realize. Think. So yeah. true. Right, right. Yeah. Now, I like that definition. I think it encompasses you know, like all of those things you just mentioned. And I feel like in our society, you're right, like there is this stigma towards addiction, but I think in doing so, we don't open up the conversation for things like you just mentioned, that if you look at the spectrum of addiction, it applies to so much more than just substances, right? That's right. Behaviors, like you mentioned, right? That's correct. So what are these common problems or recurring themes that you see with people who struggle with addiction? Now, when it comes to addiction, to start with, what usually happens is, well, let's take substances, for instance. In a lot of cases, people end up drinking alcohol socially initially, and then very quickly that might begin to spiral out of control. And spiraling out of control will mean maybe they're beginning to drink more, a lot more than they they would like to drink. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe they're beginning to um, actually cut out other activities because they're drinking or drug users taking over. Uh, Mm -hmm. Maybe they're not able to meet up with family obligations as a result of uh, their substance use. In -hmm. some cases, it's just the cravings and not being able to manage their jobs, their school, their family, and continuing to use the substances even when it's causing a lot of problems, whether it's legal problems from DUIs or marital discord or being disconnected for their kids as a result. For some people, it's even developing physical issues, liver disease, heart conditions, mental illness, depression, anxiety, and all of that as well. And then eventually, I guess, to the point where they use it so much that they end up developing dependence and withdrawals. Withdrawals in the mm-hmm. sense that when they try to quit using the substances, they end up developing physical symptoms that make it even harder for them to quit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that you touched on a lot of really important points there. And it's interesting too, because, you know, it happens over time. It doesn't just like, you know, all of a sudden snap, you know, all these problems. like 
these problems slowly and slowly and slowly accumulate to the point where someone might not realize, but okay, now this is their third emergency medicine visit and they're now cut off from their family and friends because alcohol is a problem, you know? And their their family and friends are, you know, giving up on them for whatever reasons and now they're alone. So, I, you know, I think that like, it's important to see these these patterns because whether you're the person going through it or the family or friend that is seeing it happen, you know, those points in time are so critical to possibly change the trajectory. You know what I mean? Oh, definitely. That's so true. I, I think it's it's really um, important for us to 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 buttress on that a little bit. Why I hear mm -hmm. a lot of people, a lot of my patients tell me sometimes is, oh, well, yes, right now I'm drinking this much. Mm -hmm. but, you know, I'm using this drug, but I can stop when I want to. I hear that so commonly. But <laughs> addiction is a disease. It's not something you can just stop overnight. Now, some people are able to quit cold turkey, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, a lot of people who are out there struggling right now, struggling because they can't stop, which makes it really important to get the help you need to get as, right. as soon as possible before it spirals out of control. Exactly. Exactly. And so that touches on my follow-up question for that. What type of addictions you deal with, whether it's smoking drugs or alcohol, in your opinion, what are those certain addictions that you know, seem to be more severe than others. And what I mean by severe is like, you know, it's it's affected them so much that they've come to the point where, you know, they feel isolated and alone, they're cut off from family and friends, it's affected their job, they're, they might even have lost their job, they're homeless. Like, what are those certain ones that you've seen and why do you think that is? I think I think if you look around, I think one of the biggest is alcohol. Of course, other than alcohol, we're also looking at very commonly opioids and pain pills. And meth is another one that has been there in the background and just keeps growing as well. But most commonly, alcohol. And alcohol. you know, yes. And I think is it just, of, do you think it might just be? Sorry to interject real quick. Do you think it might just be because it's so pervasive in society? You can like you know go to the street corner, to the local liquor store, you know, go to the supermarket to buy alcohol do you think it's just because of the widespread availability that's one of the reasons i think that's that's one of the big reasons for sure alcohol is legal it's okay to drink socially right you can easily buy it from the liquor store so people end up drinking you know socially and then in some cases that you know spirals out of control really quickly for some people especially for those who maybe have a family history or who are using it to self-medicate uh, a mental illness or even sleep issues as well mm -hmm. but alcohol is what i see most commonly and of course in this we're currently recording this during the covid period right and right just yeah comment on that I, you know sorry just like it, you know i think that's an important point you know, we see stuff in the news about it. And, you know, we even see, pay I have seen patients like over the past nine months that I'm admitting for, you know, increased substance abuse. So what, what are you seeing like in the day to day, like in the context of this pandemic, you know? In the context of this pandemic, I've seen two things broadly. I've seen one, more people just drinking and getting into more issues with alcohol. And two, people who previously in the past were stable Mm -hmm. or we're living in recovery, relapsing. And I mean, we can attribute this to various reasons. With the COVID, sure. with the pandemic right now, we have a lot of people working from home. So one thing I'm very commonly saying is people who in the past will 
get back from work and maybe have a glass of wine with dinner or at night before bed and maybe two or three drinks over the weekends. What's going on now with them walking at home and taking Zoom calls is they jump on a Zoom call, turn the camera off, and then there's a glass of wine or a bottle of beer from the morning. And then by the time it's five or six o'clock, they've had five or six drinks already. Mm-hmm. And that just becomes a habit and gets to the point where even functioning at work becomes an issue. I had a patient who recently lost a job just as a, as a result of that as well. Uh, so that's, that's, that's one thing. And then, of course, we're not interacting as much as we did in the past as humans right. were social beings, right? So yeah. it, it's yep. a struggle for a lot of people uh, to not interact as much as they did in the past. And then, of course, their job losses. A lot of people have lost their jobs, so that doesn't help. So sure. this and several other reasons are the, re- are, are the reasons why we're seeing a lot of people just struggling more and more with alcohol, unfortunately. Gosh, you know, it's just really unfortunate because there's so many levels to it. And the pandemic kind of exacerbates those specific situations. Sadly you know? so. And, and for people who've already sought out help, right? I mean, maybe the offices are closed. Maybe the AA meetings that they depended on for, you know, in-person group meetings, they, they got canceled and, you know, the the Zoom thing is just not cutting it for them, you know? So it's, yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking to see. So, you know, what would you say to those out there that have an addiction? Maybe it did pop up during the pandemic and they may not have been aware of it before, but, you know, they're thinking maybe, I have one. So like, for example, people in maybe their family or friends see it, you know, in them and may even tell them, but they ignore these warning signs. So what what would you say to these people? I think for anyone who may have an inkling that they're struggling a little bit, the very first thing is accepting that there is a problem. I think until you've actually come to the realization that there is a problem, it's going to be hard for you to solve it, right? Because right. The, the beginning of solving any problem is even realizing you have a problem. And one of the things I tell a lot of my patients is you have to be able to account for how much substance you use. And this is when it comes to alcohol or other drugs. And I'll specifically talk about alcohol here. Here's what I notice sometimes. A patient comes in and agrees that, well, he's probably drinking a little bit more than he or she should be drinking. And, you know, Mm -hmm. when you get to ask, they say, well, I'm only drinking two glasses of wine a day. Well, come to find out when you probe a little bit more, they're drinking two glasses of wine a day, but these are two full glasses of wine. Now, the CDC defines a standard drink as five ounces of wine per seven. Now, Mm. if you're having a full glass, that's easily two to three drinks right there. So you end up finding out that you're drinking six drinks as compared to just two drinks. So I think it's important for people to take that into consideration. You want to know how much you're drinking and you definitely want to get help as quickly as you can. There's a lot of help out there. There's inpatient and there's outpatient. And, you know, that brings me to another very important consideration as well, because that's another thing I very hear. I very commonly hear people talk about. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure exactly where to get help and how to get help and what kind Mm -hmm. of help is available. Right. For some people, they think that to get help for addiction means you have to go to an inpatient facility for 30 days and they don't want to do that because they don't want to lose their jobs and be away from their families. But there is also outpatient addiction treatment, which can be in the form of meeting up with an addiction specialist 
least from time to time, or an intensive outpatient program or a partial hospitalization program. And then there's support groups as well. Like you talked about the virtual groups, the AA meetings, the NAs, smart recovery. There's a ton of resources out there. So acceptance and actually taking a step to get the help you need. To get the help. That, yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, those are very good points. So please keep that in mind for our listeners. And then how about vice versa? What would you say to those who have someone they care about that they've noticed are struggling with addiction, especially now during this pandemic? What would you tell these people, our listeners, who might be seeing that in, you know, a family or a friend? Support, support, support. I cannot mm. stress that enough. But like, how, is... how would you, sorry, I just want to like, you know, pinpoint it specifically, because, you know, a lot of times we say support, but like, what does that mean? Like, you know, walk us through that. Like, how would you, as, you know, not just a doctor, let's say you see it in your brother, you know, or like your, your childhood friend, what types of things would you say to that person? Like, how do you approach that conversation? Because I feel like a lot of times, especially if that person is unaware, they might already turn in defense mode, you know, defensive and and just like not want to talk to them. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. And that's a very important question. I think for someone whom you know, and you send a trend, you send a transformation, you send the changes, I think it makes a lot of sense to bring it up gently you don't want to you don't want to be forceful about it you mm-hmm. don't want to push the person away you want to show love as compared to pushing the person away and letting them know that these are the changes you've actually noticed and encouraging them to get you know the help they need what i see very commonly is a lot of anger and frustration from friends and family members unfortunately mm-hmm. that usually will mm-hmm. push whoever is struggling with drugs and alcohol away. And what we yeah. see is they begin to hide it. I mean, I have patients who will hide the bottles of alcohol in the garage and in their cars and in the office because their spouse at home is not coming from a place of love. Now, I know that's easier said than done. It can be sure. very hard and frustrating. But I think just knowing that this person who's struggling with this disorder is not struggling because they want to, but rather because it's a disease. It's kind of like you will treat high blood pressure as well for someone who has high blood pressure, diabetes, you encourage them to take their medications. Now, do patients always take their medications as prescribed? <laughs> I mean, we know that doesn't happen all the time. Yeah, we know in real life that's yes. not always the case. Yeah. yeah, but you don't get too hateful about that. You, right. you continue to encourage them and come from a place of love and you know help them out. Now, I know that in some cases it gets so hopeless that some people actually consider getting an intervention done. Mm-hmm. Now, for a lot of people, that's the last resort, but and there's nothing wrong with it. But I think it's getting whoever is struggling with drugs or alcohol or other addictions to the point where they're willing to get help. Because mm-hmm. what I've seen mm-hmm. over the years is until someone's ready to get help, it's almost impossible to make them take that next step. And the way you can continue to help them to hopefully take the baby steps towards getting help, it's just coming from a place of love. Yeah. That, I mean, I think that's beautifully said, and I, I love what you just said right there. And then let me just ask you, you know, how about for those that have an addiction and now they're willing to do something about it, right? They've already gotten past the point where the, you know, family or friends, someone has pointed out to them and now they're recognizing and maybe wanting to do something in the things they could do now in this moment, like today, what are those things that could have a major impact on them and lead them to lasting sobriety. And, you know, just to tie in the lifestyle medicine aspect of things, because this is another one of your your specialties, 
how can these other areas of lifestyle have an impact on this overall addiction process? Yeah, when it comes to uh, lifestyle tenets as relates to addiction, of course, we're talking about things like nutrition and sleep and stress mm. management, exercise and social connectedness as well. You know, I'd like to start by talking about sleep. And the reason sure. why I do this is because this is this is something I very commonly see. A lot of people just who are struggling with addiction struggle with sleep as well. And in fact, there's a study I was looking at a few weeks ago that showed that the sleep problems are five times more common in people who are struggling with addiction. And yeah. as a result yeah. of that, the chances of them relapsing are higher. You see a lot of irritability and impulsivity and because of the, the, the lack of sleep. So just basic sleep hygiene, I think, is one way to go about ensuring that you know, people are getting better sleep. And right. I'd like to very quickly run through 10 quick things, 10 easy things people can do yeah, that just to improve their sleep. And the first is one, diet. So some foods inhibit your sleep. I'm talking about foods high in sugar and refined fat, and of course, spicy food as well. Um, you also want to avoid heavy meals before bedtime. Now, the second thing is exercise. Studies show the regular exercise help with sleep. And just exercising for as little as 15 to 30 minutes every day is enough to actually yield benefits for insomnia. Three is light. Get some sunlight in the day, and then in the evenings when you're home, you want to dim the lights down a little bit so you're not overstimulated before it's bedtime. And then number four, electronic devices. So we're talking phones, tablets, computers. And this is because these emit blue lights. We don't want blue lights on hour to when we're going to go to bed. So the advice mm -hmm. is cut back on electronics at least an hour before you have to go to bed. Right. If you definitely have to use your electronics, you can use the, light, the night mode. But still, that's, that's not enough. The best option is to cut back completely. And then five, talking about your bedroom. Bedroom should be dark, should be cold and quiet. As much as possible, you want to make sure you regulate your temperature of your bedroom to about 60 to 70 degrees. Your body temperature spikes up and down during uh, nighttime. So you want to be as comfortable as possible. Of course, you want a quiet environment. Now, that's not something everybody can get. If you have a neighbor's dog constantly barking or if you have happened sure. to live close to a train track or something, you could use a white noise machine to drown that just to help you get some better sleep. Bedroom color, believe it or not, <laughs> plays a role. You don't want a bedroom color. It does. Wow. So, yes. Studies have actually shown that you want to pick calmer colors. So lighter shades of white and gray and blue as compared to painting your room a dark purple color, for instance. So I'm good with my light, light green. So that should work. It's a light, <laughs> calming color. Yes. If you feel it's a color that calms you, then that should work. Okay, good, good. <laughs> And then the seventh thing here is bedtime routines. Try and stick with the routine. Go to bed about the same time every day and wake up about the same time every day. And even things like just changing your mattress goes a long way. I've had patients who have just changed their mattress and overnight are sleeping a lot better. Now, the eighth thing I want to talk about is alcohol. You definitely want to avoid alcohol before <laughs> yeah. bed. There's this myth that alcohol helps you sleep. Yes, it might make you drowsy, but what it does is it affects your REM sleep. You wake up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep because it begins to stimulate you. So cut out alcohol. In addition, you want to cut out caffeine and tea several hours before bedtime because in addition to these being stimulants, 
the also diuretic. So you find out you're waking up several mm -hmm. times at night and that mm -hmm. interrupts your sleep and you're not getting enough sleep. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing I'm going to talk about here is winding down before bedtime. So you want to try to avoid walk and do something relaxing, whether it's taking a hot shower or reading a book or meditating or doing some yoga. Now, this is simple sleep hygiene techniques you can use to improve your sleep overall. Wow, that was awesome. Never did I really imagine talking to an addiction specialist, we'd be focusing on sleep because it has such a big effect. It does. This yeah, is great. It does. Yeah, and so to clarify on those two points, so these top 10, you know, benefits for 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 yourself with sleep hygiene and getting to sleep better so one of the things you mentioned was nutrition and staying away from you know processed or refined carbs so that would just be like you know white pasta we're talking about like white rice bread those type of things correct just that's, to clarify for our, our listeners that's that's correct you know um as um certified lifestyle physicians the the american board of lifestyle medicine recommends a predominantly whole food plant-based diet mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the whole idea is to eat more whole foods and stay away from a lot of the processed foods so right. one thing i tell patients is you want to you want to try and eat foods that have limited ingredients in them. So uh, if you take an apple, for instance, right, you go over to a fresh fruit vendor and you buy an apple, there's really no ingredient. It's just an apple. Now, if you are buying a can of peanut butter, for instance, you have a list of 15 different things. And the more complex right. these things are, the worse off it is for you. Talking about peanut butter, for instance, one of the really terrible ingredients it contains is the hydrogenated vegetable oils, which, you know, mm -hmm. and has a lot of trans fats, which is really unhealthy for you. So you want to try and cut out the processed foods, the white rice, the cakes, the cookies. Now, right. I'm not saying you shouldn't eat them at all. That would be the preference. But, you know, we know people like their sweets. Sure. So you definitely want to try and minimize more whole foods, more fruits, more vegetables. In fact, the way I, I look at it is the more colors you can eat when it comes to fruits and vegetables the better so you know go out there and mm -hmm. look for fruits and vegetables with different colors even those you haven't tried before so you can get enough of your vitamins minerals and all that other love enzymes. it i love it so you know it kind of in summary you want to eat foods that are plants but not foods that come from plants that's like correct plant manufacturing plants <laughs> that's right that's right. <laughs> wow, what a what an extensive list. I I love that. And the thing is, you know, you know, you touched on it. There's all these aspects of what you do on a daily basis that can affect each and every aspect of your health. Mm -hmm. And That's so true. you know, and they're all intertwined. You know, the sleep affects you know your mood, but it, it can also affect your metabolism. So if you're trying to, for example, like lose weight. If you're sleeping less than six hours a night, your body's chemistry and the hormones will not allow you to lose that additional weight, mm -hmm. you know? And so I think it just drives home the point that the things you do, sleep, eating, exercise, it affects all different parts of your health. So what you can do to kind of move in the direction towards healthier living, the better it is for you overall. And when it comes to, you know, we're talking about addiction, this will help any one person get through the whole addiction recovery process. That's you know? right. 
That's right. And and you talked about you talked about exercise as well. Mm-hmm. Again, there's several studies out that have just shown that exercise goes a long way in helping you not just physically but mentally as well. And even right. for those who have been abusing uh, illicit substances, it's been proven that exercise can actually help with neuroplasticity, which is just the repair of your brain after your brain has been damaged by a lot of the drugs uh, you've been using. So it's really important for people who are living in recovery to get some regular exercise going. Now, the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine recommends about 150 minutes of moderate exercise a week. And that can be broken up depending on what works for you. It doesn't have to be five times a week. It can be three times a week. It can be five. It can be depending on what works for you. Sure. But, you know, with exercise, like I tell my patients all the time, I'll take the tiniest you can give me over nothing. If all yeah. you can do is 10 right. minutes a day, let's do totally. it. Totally. Yeah. 100%. I mean, I, I love that message because it's better to do a little than to just not do it at all. That's and correct. Over time, once you build that habit and you're consistent about it, you can build up the time and the frequency. But just getting started, I think, is the most important part. That's yeah. right get started. And also, you know, talking about getting started, I think another thing to point out as much as possible, mm-hmm. people should try to do things they enjoy. Um, what mm-hmm. I see very commonly is a lot of people join a gym and then everybody's going to the gym from January to March and then March, everybody falls off the wagon because it's boring. Running <laughs> you on you can just say from gym. January <laughs> 1 to January 31. <laughs> there, you, there you go. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, if you're going to do exercise, get something you actually look forward to doing whether it's cycling or tennis or basketball, because with that, it's more likely that you're able to, you will be able to continue doing it more often if you actually enjoy doing it. Exactly. And I think, you know, you have to get a little more creative now that we're in the pandemic, but looking ahead to the months, you know, hopefully in 2021, when everyone is vaccinated and we bring these, these COVID numbers down, gyms can open again and you can enjoy those exercises that you love doing. That's you know? right. So and then w- when someone quits and, you know, enters their time of sobriety, like, you know, in a lot of the cases you've seen, then they relapse, which I'm I'm sure you've probably seen many of times in your career. W- what are these real reasons as to why someone does relapse and how could someone prevent their own relapse from happening? Well, two things. One, uh, when it comes to addiction treatment, uh, you want to be able to look at the root cause. So mm-hmm. there's a there's a big difference between sobriety and recovery. Sobriety simply means you were using drugs and alcohol at some point and now you're clean, you stopped. Mm-hmm. Now with recovery, it's more encompassing. With recovery, it's actually digging into the reasons why you had an addiction mm-hmm. to finding coping mechanisms to help you live in recovery, clean from drugs and alcohol. So it's the root cause digging into that, Mm. finding what that out, developing coping mechanisms so that eventually when you're done with your addiction treatment, you're able to walk properly with your aftercare. That's something I see a lot of people struggle with. A lot of people seem to think addiction treatment is a silver bullet. There is a silver bullet or there's a magic elixir. There's none. Mm -hmm. Yes, you get Mm -hmm. addiction treatment, but 
post-addiction treatment, you also need to follow through with your aftercare. When I say aftercare, I'm referring to the follow-ups you should have when you leave treatment. So sure. following up with your psychiatrist, for instance, or mental health provider to get a proper mental health evaluation and treat the underlying anxiety, depression, or even sleep issues that sure. may have precipitated your drug use in the first place. I'm right. talking about following up with your primary care provider to make sure physically you're healthy and you don't have any underlying conditions that could contribute to addiction, like pain, for instance. We see that a lot where people relapse as a result of pain. I'm also talking about following up with support groups, whether it be virtual groups or in-person groups like AANA, Smart Recovery, or even plugging yourself into one of the numerous Facebook groups out there uh, to get support from like-minded people like yourself. And then, of course, social connectedness with friends and with family members, because the importance of having people who can support you when you're done with your addiction treatment is just priceless. I have a Facebook group called Inspiring Addiction Recovery, and I recall a few weeks ago, I posted a question on the group asking what they had found the most helpful with the addiction treatment. And most people came up with support from friends and family hmm. members. So it's a social connection. Social connection is huge. And then again, another thing to really consider is environment. Environment is just big. And I'd, I'd like to preface mm -hmm. that with a very, very short analogy here. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the, the first commercial bungee jumping took place in 1988 off the Kawarau Bridge in Queenstown in New Zealand. It's a 43-meter drop into the mm -hmm. gorge that even till today continues to attract a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Now, there are two groups of people who go there, people who go with the intent of actually taking the, the plunge, mm -hmm. and then also people who just go there to observe and to watch. Mm -hmm. So for those who are watching, they actually stay off from a distance on a platform watching the others make the jump. Now, over time, as these guys who are watching see others actually get strapped on and take the jump, they become encouraged, they develop some confidence, they realize that it's possible for them to do this as well. And some of them end up actually bungee jumping as well. So I say that because environment has a way of playing a huge role and people can, mm -hmm. from the vicarious experiences of others, actually get to the point where they're doing better. So environment mm. is huge. If you're going back home, for instance, as well, you want to make sure it's not the same friends who are going to encourage you to get back to use. And you want to make sure you take away the alcohol from the, from the house before you get home. So it's all of these factors. I think if people can plug all of this in more, I think we're going to see less recidivism rates, which is less people relapsing on drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you touched on a lot of important points there. And, you know, I think that, you know, whoever is going through it, really seeking out help, not just professional, but personal help, reaching out to your loved ones, reaching out to your friends, because all this support in the end will help you become successful with, you know, your recovery process. And I think that, you know, whether it is you that has the addiction or, you know, the loved ones that are looking at this, when someone starts to the recovery process, I feel like a lot of times we're so focused on like that one event rather than it being a process because like it's not over after they've quit. Like this is going to be a lifelong struggle for them. It's a journey. It's a journey. Exactly. Yeah. Just like our health. You know, we just mentioned before at the beginning of this talk, mental health is health. So addiction, it's a disease. 
you know, it's a process, the recovery process can be helped with the support of, you know, your community professionally and personally. So we got to wrap this up. This has been awesome. But before we go, can you just tell us briefly about your, you know, website addictionblueprint.com? And, you know, you're an outpatient addiction treatment, promoting wellness and recovery at Prime Wellness Center. So we have an outpatient addiction treatment program called Prime Wellness Center, and that's primewc.com. And I also have a blog called Addiction Blueprints. And the website for that is addictionblueprint.com. This is a blog that's offering free tips and free resources for people who are struggling with um, addiction. Um, I'm currently also working on a podcast, which hopefully oh. should be released in January. Oh, and, uh, nice. That's Congrats. going to be called uh, Prime Recovery. So again, Prime it's going to be Prime Recovery. And it's going to be offering um, you know, free tips and resources, value, inspiration, and offering hope to people who are struggling with addiction. Amazing. Hey, you know, okay, people, make sure to check out Dr. Ufosa's website. He's got that podcast coming up in January. And all of those links will be in our show notes. This has been such a pleasure, like great talking to you. I, I just love your story. And I love your passion that you bring to addiction medicine and how you spin, you know, lifestyle medicine and how whole health really plays a big role in addiction success. So I appreciate you coming on the show. I hope we can do this again in the future, having you back on for additional topics in this, oh, this whole realm. I love it. I love talking to you. This has been so much fun. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. And you do a great job as well. Your podcast is amazing. <laughs> I listen you. to that. I listen to the episodes regularly and I, I will continue to listen to them and also recommend them to other people as well. So well I, done. I, really, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Okay, we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you. Have a good one. You too. So what did you think? Dr. Arukia, what an insightful physician and caring person that guy is. I hope our talk helps you or those that you love through the addiction recovery process. Please reach out to Dr. Arukia and me to let us know how this episode was for you on our respective social platforms, which you can find the links to in our show notes. And I'm always interested in improving this show. So email me at drjonar at gmail.com if you have any suggestions on topics you want to hear or how we can make the show better, or to just let us know how a specific episode or guest helped to inspire you. I really look forward to hearing from you. So thankful to have Dr. Arukia on the show. And as always, so thankful to you for tuning in to hear our talk. So if you like what you heard, please subscribe, like, and review my podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and share it with your family, friends, and online because sharing is caring. Thanks again to the wonderful and smart Amelia Liu, my intern, to Jacob Ferrer for production help and to Stock Sounds for the music. And lastly, to you. Thank you again for listening. And remember, your state of health starts with your state of mind. So till next time, enjoy the process, my friends. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice, so please talk to your primary physician for that. In addition, the views and opinions expressed by me are my own and not that of my former, current, or future employer. This also applies to my guests. Finally, we do our best to make every effort to relay correct information. We do not guarantee its accuracy. Thank you for listening.